Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This time we're Review 2-ing The Million Dollar Hotel. We may get plot details wrong. They were afraid to go full throttle weird. After I jumped, it occurred to me. It's not a very good John Lennon impression, let me tell you that. It's jazzy. It's not pleasurable to listen to. I will watch it again. Hmm. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Review 2, the U2 podcast brought to you by myself, Tyler, and of course we've got, as usual, Johnny. Hello. Nice to see you all again. Yeah, nice to be actually sat in the same room as Tyler. No, it's nice. I say nice, yeah, it's all right. I can hear the the, uh, ice cream live today. (laughs) People did actually wonder if that was just some... Yeah, I'm wondering how many people actually think that we're just piping in weird sounds to make it seem like we've got busy lives. Well, congrats if you got to the end of the last episode and heard the uh, cameo by the local ice cream person. Yeah, it feels really good to be to actually be doing Review 2 again. Yep. I know we, 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 we did a Q&A and we'll do another one of those because that was really fun and mm-hmm. we, we missed a few people's questions um, as you'd expect from us at this point, I think. Yeah. Um, and then before that, it was the U2 Baby episode it, all the was way that long ago? back in January. Yeah. Wow. I think that's all we've done with Review 2 so far this year. Um, But uh, this should be coming out in August, which means it kind of celebrates the fourth year anniversary of the Review 2 podcast. Um, So it's kind of celebratory because me and Johnny are back in the the same room again today. And it's it's just it's just nice to come back to something i just bang my microphone again there. All right, the professionalism is Four years and uh, and I'm still banging microphones. Well, well done. Um, so we've got The Million Dollar Hotel today. A film and a soundtrack that we are doing on request. So Tyler put out a poll. He said, are we going to do Melon? Are we going to do The Million Dollar Soundtrack? Uh, the Million Dollar Hotel? Or something else? And with an astonishing 47.6%, The Million Dollar Hotel won. It's the most controversial vote since Brexit. And uh, we had quite a lot of support, so uh, Angela Pancella, I hope I'm saying that right, she seemed to want us to do that one, as did Anthony John Bonk, and Joe Maxwell says, anything but Million Dollar Hotel, it's not worth it. So we'll dedicate the episode to Joe Maxwell. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, but this is what we're doing, apparently. And let's just... We are the worst people in the world. (laughs) People don't tune in to be entertained by us, they tune in to be annoyed by us. Yeah, well, they will get a large <laughs> dose of that today. And I think that's appropriate because we're reviewing an annoying project, really, which is The Million Dollar Hotel. Have you seen this film prior to this podcast, Tyler? So my history with this film is um, some, at some point in the, in the early years of my YouTube fandom, uh, I found out that there was an extra track on All That You Can't Leave Behind. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find that version of the CD anywhere. You know, in Manchester or Wigan, because it was a special edition at, at Are you first. Talking wasn't it? about the um, ground beneath her feet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just thought the album finished with Grace. It does technically. We've had this discussion. Well, yeah, but okay. So I, that's how I how I saw it, and then I didn't I didn't really feel the need to just go and buy an album again just for this other track. And then how things change. Yeah. Uh, I finally found it one day, and I and I bought it, and I played it, and I don't remember ever not loving the ground beneath her feet. Yeah, 
Um, and like later on in life, it would it would come back to me in like you know hugely emotional and meaningful times, mm-hmm. falling in love, uh, dealing with grief, things like that. Yeah. Uh, just and it it kind of excites me that I was able to hold off on buying that. Yeah, Do you know, it's like, it's a very strange thing to be excited by. But I I never remember disliking that track. I always feel like it's a bit of added something as a bonus or an extra track should be like if you buy if, if you buy a cd and it's got an extra disc mm. it better be worth me listening to it well to me it's always been a frustrating thing and let's not rehash the conversations we've had about this before but it we, should we, be we, on... we agree to disagree you think uh all you can't leave behind ends with grace it does i, I think it ends with the ground beneath her feet you're entirely entitled to your own maybe errors. that's why i think it's a flipping album and you don't if, yeah, let's play. Let's. I, I can. I listened back to that podcast just to, to make sure we didn't re, retread the same old ground. So, if you want to hear me and Tyler um, go at it, hammer and tongs with this debate, then go back to our episode on Oil That You Can't Leave Behind. Hmm. But yeah, that it ends that album and it starts the soundtrack to this album. And what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be taking on the Million Dollar Hotel. Now, just like with Brexit, the vote happened. I'm not happy about it, but we've got to make the best of this good bad situation. You see, I kind of ignored this film completely, despite how how much I think of the yeah. ground beneath her feet. Really did um, ignore it completely, and so I think we struggled to find it. Both of us. I had to order it on DVD used. I yeah, so did I. I and it was cheaper. Uh, I would like to have a review to bet with you right now for one English pound. Right, well, yeah. that I spent less on it than you did. Um, well, I don't know how much I spent. I'll have to quickly log into my Amazon. But go on then, for the sake of a pound, outside of postage. So just you know, the, for the actual item itself, what okay. did you pay? Um, well, you'll have to fill for a second because I'm going to have to look it up because I'm using a well-known web browser. Oh, I got it for two web browser uh, delivery service. Uh, I got it for two pounds forty-one. Lovely. What did you get for? You owe me a pound because I got it for fifty p from CEX. <laughs> well, that's that's value for you. Are they a sponsor? Uh, they're not a sponsor. They could they could be. I'd happily be sponsored by CEX. Any spare money, CEX? Just send that over. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Um. So today, I'm really glad that because you hate spending money. Obviously, I don't mind it as much, which <laughs> makes this victory sweeter. And I've lost money from the victory as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. there we go. Well. Uh, so, what we're going to do today, then, is we're going to review the film first. We're going to have a chat about the film. We're going to try, I think, to just go through it, a, a bit of the plot, a bit of our reactions, some of the strange things about this film. We're going to do it properly, as I said before. So, we're going to do all the film, and then we're going to do the soundtrack. Only our, sac- our second film review? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that last one for Killing Bono took the world by storm. Oh, people still talk about that. Yeah, exactly. You know, people on the bus cannot stop talking about the killing bono review no exactly um i to answer my question back to me i had seen this film before once i remember seeing it because my friend laura showed it to me and again i had that weird that weird thing where i love you two so much but i just wasn't interested in this film um initially so it took someone else showing it to me and i remember thinking it felt very 90s even though it's a 2000 film um it felt very 90s and very kind of like made by made by people who just had too much time on their hands, <laughs> just sort of a big waste of time and quite a lot of 
nicely shot things with people saying pretentious existential stuff over the top of it. Yeah. Um, that was my lasting impression, and it's not been proved wrong. So let's let's just do a little bit of details here. I'm sorry if I'm hurrying this on and trying to get all the details out, but it's a 2000 film. I was surprised to learn that it was released in February, so it actually um, precedes All You Can't Leave Behind, which makes... I can't believe you didn't know that, John. Well, neither did you until 10 minutes ago when I told you. Um, it's based on a concept by Bono, and we're going to hear a bit more about that and how it came about. Um, I think this is one of those things where Bono wrote down the idea on the back of a fag packet and then gave it to someone more qualified. So Nicholas Klein is the one who actually wrote it up. Um, it was directed by Vin Vendors, starring Jeremy Davis. Um, now, we're probably going to come into some problems here, but I've seen a video of Mila Djokovic online pronouncing it with a J sound. So... Let's not worry about how we're pronouncing it. Jokovic, Djokovic, who cares? And Mel Gibson. Uh, the film is chocked full of music by U2 and various artists, including the Million Dollar Band. I've, I've always wondered what Mel Gibson's first name is. Is it Melvin? <laughs> Let's find out. Uh, it's just Mel. Although his middle name is Seal Gerard. Well, that's interesting. Anyway. Um, Melvin. Yeah, Melvin Gibson. Wouldn't not the kind of the action hero he makes out to be most of the time. Right. So how did this film come about? I'm going to just do a little quick quote from U2 by U2. So Bono here. He's going to be reading this out. Not 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 actually. Please do a Bono impression. No, that would be <laughs> that'd be offensive and torpedo any chances of us actually ever meeting the band. <laughs> So, one day, during time off from making Rattling Home, myself and the Edge were hanging out on top of the Million Dollar Hotel, which is just around the corner from our favourite club in downtown LA. We were at the top of one very tall building, and Edge reckoned if he really had to, he could jump to the roof of the next building. And he was getting far too close to the edge for my... Uh, sorry, to the ledge. That was, a, that was an obvious error, wasn't it? <laughs> far too close to the ledge for my liking. That's when I came up with the idea. Spending this time... Oh, God, Bono's gone on for ages here. Spending time in this city of the imagination... He always has to get in a little thing like that. I was bitten by the movie bug. He means LA. I met a screenwriter called Nicholas Klein at a party in the Hollywood Hills. And he said, have you got a story? I said, I don't, but I've got an opening scene. A guy jumps off a building trying to get to the next. And he said, well, I've got the perfect line for you. I said, what's that? He said, after I jumped, it occurred to me. So that's where this film begins. Bono goes on in a bit more detail, but we don't need to... No, I'm, I'm just glad you got through most of that without the director's commentary. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> we're, all, we're both banging microphones today. So we're just not used to being in the same room. Um, yeah, so this came from a idea that Bono had had a long time ago. I think it took over 10 years for this to be fleshed out properly. And it came from this idea of a leap. He, he talks in the extras, which are not very good on the Million Dollar Hotel DVD about... Does he mention the Live Aid thing? I don't think so. Why? Because when, after Live Aid, um, the biggest U2 show in history that we've never reviewed, um, the, the, Bono was back in Ireland, and I, I, think, I, I can't remember exactly where, but he came across this sculptor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the sculptor just said, can I, can I just show you something? I think they just bumped into each other. Mm. And it was uh, a sculpture of a, a guy leaping. Oh, yeah. And it was called The Leap. And it was inspired by Bono jumping into the, you know, off the stage mm. to go meet. I mean, he's really I'm saying, I mean, he, he meandered down it. Yeah. 
it wasn't a leap. I mean, you know, the victory was gravities at the end of the day with that. Mm. But that idea of reaching out and, you know, getting across a gap, across a divide. Yeah. um, And this piece of work was called The Leap. And Bono's told that story somewhere. I don't know where, but um, it's interesting that, that, you know, this idea of a leap for Bono keeps keeps coming around again. Yeah. And I think it, it percolated for a long time, this idea of a jump. And I think that sort of sums up maybe one of the problems of this film it is a sort of leap of the imagination but it doesn't really it's not a leap forwards to... no it's a leap this is a problem with early up and down yeah very listen, quickly i think we've, we spoke before about how you know uh, things are categorized by the decade that they came out in like so it's 80s and 90s but i i don't think it works like that i think sometimes it works better if you go 85 to 95 95 yeah, to 2005. Entirely arbitrary dates. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, um, and, but I do think you can say, no, no, that was this period, but it was, you know, a little bit of this decade. And it's it's very rarely from like the, the 10 to the 10. Mm. So I think you can say the same thing about film. Um, and I'm going to use uh, Dying of a Day, which came out in 2002. Mm-hmm. And that seems much more like a 90s Bond theme or a 90, uh, 90s Bond film or action film than a noughties action film and the comparison is often brought is often the born identity films mm. and how that signifies the start of a a new era in filmmaking yeah so I, I do think there's a bit of a crossover this definitely seems more 90s to me than the not yeah i mean it's very early 2000 when it comes out the bulk of the work has been done and filmed i imagine in 1999 and it is an idea and it's something that's been obviously rattling around Bono's head and there's some guiding principles which are interesting but I think overall it's not much of a spoiler to say this was not a success. It didn't do very well and even Mel Gibson himself, <laughs> I wasn't even allowed to put this on Twitter. Let's because call him it's, Melvin. It's not Melvin. Um, so even Mel Gibson himself went around, he said, he said at the time, so this was uh, just before the Australian release, this wasn't even like five years after, he said, I thought it was as boring as a dog's ass. Um, later on, he regretted saying that, but he said that, and considering he was actually a producer, um, it did very, very badly. It cost $8 million, pounds, sorry, $8 million estimated to produce. It took 60000 not even $60,000 at the box office, so it didn't do very well. It seemed like a passion project, but, Eight million yeah. is not huge, though, for a budget. Um, no, it isn't. But it's. A I mean, ma- it takes us a while to save up—a couple of years, maybe. Well, yeah, quite a few years. But it's. But the the projection and then the loss is massive, isn't it? I mean, yeah, a film that just breaks even is not a success. It gave a lot of rich people something to do for six weeks. Well, as I was saying before, this film is. That like, sounds really dismissive, but well, what, it, it I, must be really boring being really rich. I, I I would I would I wouldn't mind it you know I'd, I'd take it I'd take the boredom it's worth the experiment yeah exactly so again if people want to if CX or anyone else wants to send us some spare money that's fine <laughs> right so let's talk about this film then um, so we'll go through it we may get plot details wrong but I don't think that's much of an issue really we'll try not to it'd be more of an issue if it had a plot well it's I was going to save this point to later but I may as well say it now part of the problem <laughs> with this film is People have to, characters have to explain what's going on because the film doesn't do the job of showing you what's going on. So the characters say, I have to tell you what's happening. Oh, this person has been taken by the police. Oh, why is that? Well, it is because they thought they killed Tim Roth. You know? but, but I think through that, you're never really allowed to 
Um, think? No, you, you don't know who's who or you know who's playing what part. Hmm. And there's a lot of characters that are never really gone into. Well, there's a lot of two-dimensional characters all the way through. I mean, pretty much everyone in the in the hotel, bar Tom, Tom, and Eloise, are just weird two-dimensional. Wouldn't it be funny if this zany man just always talks like a member of the Beatles? Like it's just so terrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to resist. We'll, we'll get. We'll but get I, to him, I was yeah. basically singing along for all the John Lennon scenes, quote mm. unquote. Um, I was just sat there practicing, my just having conversations between the four Beatles mm. on my own. Yeah, lockdown's not been good to you. It's not. It's really not. Um, one thing I will say before I started this is I um I've just got a, a puppy, okay, and I'm looking after him a lot, and he honestly it is ridiculous. Cute, yes. It the way Johnny is acting is on. I, I, it's like this dog is the most precious, fragile thing. He is, and he's a special boy. Oh, Johnny's going so over the top with this, it's embarrassing. Okay, it is well, embarrassing. Well, anyway, I think I, I think he's adorable. Anyway, my point is, I think he's, he's a cute little dog, but he, he's gonna be fine. Well, I hope so. The point I wanted to make, anyway, is. He requires quite a lot of attention, or at least I give him a lot of attention at the moment. And I put on a Marx Brothers film, okay? I put on A Night at the Opera, and I love the Marx Brothers, right? And I managed to watch that. He was quiet. He may have been spellbound as well. And we enjoyed every part of it, and he was calm, and I could look after him. And my focus was 100% on the film. I put this on, and very quickly, I started being like what what's he doing or like start playing with him or moving things around or getting distracted it's not a film that holds your attention no i watched it in two parts mm. which helped yeah and annoyingly by the end of the second it's, it's, i think it's an hour and 56 minutes the film Some, yeah. something like that okay uh so by the time you get into the end of the last hour that's when you're getting into the film yeah and the plot gets a bit quicker towards the end as well. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of sort of navel gazing and staring about and saying things. And and, and I'm, I'm sounding very dismissive here. There are some good elements to the film. We'll get to them. I think there's about three, right? And we'll get to them eventually. And some nice lines in there. But it's it's a bit of I think of a, it's a beautiful film and it's well shot. It's very well shot. Yeah. And that, that picture that's on the front it's of the album... It's 20 years old and it's stood the test of time. Well, Mark's In terms of Im- image... Old. You well, know. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I mean, it's. But again, that's that sort of brings up the problem with it. It's glossily packaged, but there isn't really anything there. Do you, do you know what? I, I feel like they were afraid to go full throttle weird with this. Mm. You know, kind of. It's zany rather than proper art house weird. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's a problem. It reminded me a lot, uh, not uh, not just the film, the soundtrack as well, of Twin Peaks. It's I was just going to say. Hugely influential on, on this film. Yeah, I was. I thought you were going to say million dollar hotels influential on there. Uh, no, no. Yeah, no. Uh, it's um, it's a really. So you think if Lynch had directed this, it would be better? Y- yeah, I think if it just taken a little bit more time, because surely Bono can get to David Lynch. I think Lynch just just works with whomever he wishes. To be honest, what what's uh, Vim Vendor's thing? What do you mean? What's his thing? Well, you know who is he? What's he doing? I know he did like st- uh, st- uh, far, stay far away so close. Yeah, he's done a which lot... I didn't know was an actual film until recently. He's done a lot of big films in the nineties, I think, but I, d- I think he sort of falls out of our purview. So um, important ones seem to be uh, Wings of Desire. I mean, there'll be people, actual film buffs, sort of going mad here at us, but 
I I understand from Bono that he's meant to be important, mm. and but you know he's involved in this, so yeah, far away, so close! Exclamation mark, and um, yeah, it was a Spanish film, wasn't it? Spanish speaking film, far away, so close. Uh, I mean, I'm just sort of scrolling through Wikipedia here. I don't care. Let's let's move on to the film. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So, so our film opens with Tom Tom or Wolverine's skinnier brother leaping off a roof at the Million Dollar Hotel, and let's just talk about it. That haircut is kind of screaming out like, "I'm wacky, I'm zany, aren't I?" Yeah. The the Wolverine connection's good. Uh, I, I, I thought it was like a punky kind of thing. Mm. I mean, have your hair how you wish, but it's it's not a good cut, I would say. Mm. And and we've seen some dodgy cuts over Corona, but it's uh, it's not the best haircut. Well, I'm, I'm going for the uh, the, eleva- the Elevation Bono at the minute. It's not quite there. It's a bit longer, for those of you that can't see me, which is everyone but Johnny. Uh, mm, it's, it's a bit longer than Bono's in the Beautiful Day video, but not quite as long as Bono at Boston. Yawn. Right, so anyway, I mean, this is this is a point. The film does not grow our attention, and this is Tom Tom jumping off the roof. And he says that line about, um, before I jumped, and he talks about, the he realises in that moment that he loves the world and the world is magical. Um, I think it was Angela on Twitter who brought up the fact that maybe this film raises some interesting questions about um, possibly glorifying suicide and things like that and i guess that's true although tom tom doesn't really come off to me as a particularly attractive figure or a martyrish figure i don't think we were meant to see this as a beautiful oh maybe we are meant to see it as a beautiful act i don't know i don't know it's it's an it's a very odd film because i don't know where it stands on its key questions yeah i mean the emphasis throughout the throughout the whole film is his mate dying is it tim well, it's Izzy. Izzy. And we... I mean, it is quite complicated, Who's actually. Tim? Tim Roth, the actor. Oh, right. The only actor in this film, I would argue. <laughs> Later on, he turns up, and you're like, wow, an actor. Um, he plays, a, yeah, basically a cameo role as, as Izzy's. And for those of you who haven't seen this film, we should probably say, it begins with Tom Tom, a guy, a recluse, uh, an odd, innocent, kind of naive person who seems to have this interest in other people and quite a childlike engagement with the world. Um, he jumps off the roof and we are asking the question, why? Why does he do this? And that's, we start at the end and then we work our way back. We work our way back to the beginning mm. and we try to find out, okay, why has he fallen off? Now we learn that a millionaire's son, a prominent millionaire, or possibly even billionaire's uh, media mogul's son, Izzy, has fallen off a roof and the cops want to find out who done it. So they send Mel Gibson in to find out and investigate the Million Dollar Hotel, uh, the hotel from which he fell, to decide was this suicide, was this a murder, and if so, which one of these zany, wacky characters did the murder of Izzy? Brackets Tim Roth. Yeah. So that's that's what the film's about. Not the worst setup for a film. A who done it's always interesting. No, but with the actual amount of screen time that most of the characters get, you're pretty certain it's down to one of three people. Yeah, right exactly. from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. One of which is the uh, detective that is investigating the case. Melvin. <laughs> you, you think? Uh, were Melvin? You think Melvin might have actually done it? Yeah. Well, he had that weird scar, and it, which was supposed to be an arm growing out of his back. Yeah, that is revealed, or at least I thought <laughs> that's revealed way too late in the film. I think, and it ha- it serves no purpose. 
Well, I think the idea is that Mel Gibson comes in. So Mel Gibson is the hard-boiled detective coming in um, to investigate the murder. And he is... As he, he's, he reminds me, actually, if you know um, Michael Keaton's Batman, who famously couldn't move his head because the rubber thing, yeah, yeah. the costume, meant that he couldn't move about very much. So he's very um, straight and upright because he's in this back brace and he's had some horrible spinal injury, which we learn later on is an arm grin out the back of his back. I think the idea is he comes in as an outsider figure saying these guys in this hotel are all a bunch of weirdos and freaks. But then later on he's like, but I'm also one of them. And it's meant to be that kind of thing of, we're not so different, you and I. Yeah, it didn't work that bit, did well, it? I mean, that, I mean we, we should... We shouldn't start pointing out things that don't work. However, I do like his character, Skinner. Yeah, it kind it kind of works. I mean, he he considering he said it was boring and it was a, a horse's ass of a picture. I mean, we've all seen signs. Yeah, yeah. I wish I hadn't. Um, yeah, it's it's he's he plays the character in a particular way. He has this sort of Terminator esque focus. And Mel Gibson's usually a bit more of a loose cannon. So I'm thinking you William Wallace's, you Lethal Weapon Man. The, these are people who don't play by the rules. Whereas here, he is the voice of authority. So it's a bit of a strange role for him. He's very static because of this back brace that he's in. But because of what he said about it, I can't really take him seriously. Well, that's in interesting, the, the, the static nature of his character. Because a lot, a lot of times in, um, in film and stage shows, I think any visual medium, really, Something that you're supposed to do is create movement, which which grabs the eye's attention. Mm. Which Tom Tom does all the time. Yeah, which, Jeremy Davis you know, never stops your, moving. But because he's so anti-movement, mm. you you're, you're drawn to him for a different reason. Yeah, I uh, can see that. And it, whereas there's loads, everything's moving in this film yeah. apart from him. And that's why, like, Tom Tom flitting around him is actually, to be fair, that's quite a decent contrast that's that's brought up between these two characters. Because from the very first meeting, they don't understand each other. There's a bit where he, um, one of them says, is he? And one says, is he what? And I think it's these sort of, I mean, it's hilarious humour and puns. And there's a bit where he says, Tom, Tom Tom keeps saying who when he asks him a question. He says, who, who, who? He says, what are you, an owl? So... <laughs> It's they don't understand each other, and there's that contrast. But then Tom Tom starts as as the investigation proceeds to flit around him, and then pretend that he's like his little sidekick cop as well. So he pretends that he's holding a gun and pretending to be yeah, almost like his, like, his deputy. Yeah, there was never any tension. I never, I never felt like Tom Tom didn't trust him. It's it's like Tom Tom trusted everybody. Yeah, well, he's that innocent kind of yeah. figure, isn't he? And I feel, and I feel like Skinner liked Tom Tom. Eventually, I think he did. Yeah, I mean, he helps him out at the end. Yeah. So um, we meet then uh, the Swedish actor, Peter Stammer, um, who plays a character, and this is one of many zany characters in the Million Dollar Hotel, who is doing some sort of John Lennon accent. It's not a very good John Lennon impression, let me tell you that. That's a good impression of him doing it, though. Oh, really? Do you think so? Thank you. Yeah. it's re- I did like his scenes, actually, because he was going on as if he's the real John Lennon, and there's a line in there where he says, this is the first time I've left my house since December 1980, which, of course, is when John Lennon died. Mm. Um, well, me. me. You do, you're doing a better job than he did. In, um, Thank he, you. I've, honestly, this is all I've been doing in lockdown. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's wearing thin. Um, so, <laughs> But he sometimes sleeps uh, slips into either Scottish or... 
almost like a sort of deli accent, like Bombay. It, yeah, of, it is. Uh, it does region. It does veer off to you know. I mean, they should have asked me. Well, I just think it's it's just so weird though because Peter Stamer, I've seen him in lots of films. He's in Fargo playing this very intense like nihilist figure. He's in lots of things and he's usually cast as someone who is intense, sinister and violent, like Ernst Rome in uh, in uh, The Seeds of Evil. And then he's playing this madcap not very good John Lennon in person. No, but I think that's the point because you're not to, you're not supposed to think is that John Lennon? Is there a conspiracy theory? <laughs> kind of, you know, which, mm. the, which, by the way, if any film is going to go down that road, this is the film that would do that. Mm. Uh, it's not about that. It's the only person that's convinced that he is John Lennon is him. Yeah, no one else is at all. Yeah. Um, so I like that in joke because we all. I mean, living in Manchester, and I hope it's not like this all around the world. But when you see these guys that dress like Liam Gallagher. And they're in the forties, and it's like it's like every day is a, a day of Liam Gallagher cosplay for them. Mm-hmm. It's sad. Well, I mean, and I I know I, yeah I've spent a lot of my life trying to like Bono. I, was I get say, it, yeah. I get it, I get it. <laughs> but it's so I think you because I think you can get away with looking a bit like Bono because it's not obvious because not everyone dresses like Bono. Mm. But there's a lot of these people that dress like Liam Gallagher. Well, it was a style. I mean, I guess the thing is, it, I, I kind of get it. It makes more sense to me in the noughties and the early 2000s. In 2020, it's kind of wearing a bit thin, but it's a style and it's a look and I don't want to get my head kicked in because I live in Burnage. So, thumbs up, I say, all those people. Actually, last time we mentioned Liam Gallagher, we did uh, get a, a, a bit of... Um... Disgruntled some people. Why? What? Because Liam Gallagher's very popular, isn't he? Apparently. Is he? Well, For some reason. I prefer Noel, but I have no ill will yeah. to either of them. But um... if Noel hadn't supported you too... Would you care that much about Noel? Well, not massively, but I, I, I very much enjoyed his set, and I have a newfound appreciation of him. Yeah, um, I bought the albums because of the, the because I knew I was seeing him. Yeah, so. uh, well, I just listened to them on Spotify. Um, right, so um, Tom Tom then plucks up enough courage to introduce himself to Eloise, who is uh, Mila Djokovic's portrayal of this damaged and abused uh, person who seems to have gone through some sort of sexual abuse. Later on, she's attacked by four men, and it's kind of kept murky where she's up to, but she seems very disassociated from herself and just seems to read novels, and that's what she does. And that's her character. There's not really... I don't know. She's the love interest. Let's break this. make this really simple for people. But she she is. is the love interest. She is, but Tom Tom is never a sexualised character throughout this whole film. No. And they steer away, and we'll get to the hilarious joke later on about that. We'll, um, well, we'll I think we should I think we should leave that for people to... It is, it's a funny bit of the film. I assume we're talking about the the dialogue at the start of Tom Tom's Room. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe, so... we'll, maybe we'll cover it later. Maybe we won't. We'll see, uh, <laughs> we'll see how taste prevails or not. What's brilliant about that as well is you don't know what's happening the scene unfolds you are on a little that's one of the better scenes because you, you're on it you think you're witnessing one thing mm. and it keeps evolving and then it's only at the end that you realize what has actually happened i mean frequently i didn't know what was going on but that was kind of in a in an interesting way they yeah, surprised yeah. me at least rather than just confused me so izzy's father wants to find him uh, he's a shady figure and it seems to be that he doesn't really care about izzy dying that much on a personal level it's more to pad himself from a media angle so he doesn't want any scandal involved in his his son's death and his son is a heroin addict so i think he wanted to distance himself from that that's what i took from it anyway um skinner seems like actually quite a sad sad figure he, he turns up and starts being nasty to all the residents but then quite quickly i think you get some sympathy for him and i don't want to feel yeah he's kind of an outcast with the uh with feds isn't he yeah he's not liked by 
anyone pretty much throughout this. Um, do, you, do you feel like you knew if this was real world or some weird utopia, Zootopia maybe? Um, um, it felt pretty pretty like LA to me. I mean, not what I've been. But no, you know, I mean it's obviously set in LA, but like a different. Yeah, different. I mean, it's pretty weird that he had an arm growing out of his back, but I mean, maybe that happens. I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't remember last time I met someone with an arm growing out of the back. No, but no. I mean, uh, where'd you shake hands? Um, yeah, so so Skinner is this. I can't compliment. <laughs> Way he's got jokes. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> so at this point, um, Geronimo, another zany character, who's I mean, his thing is that he's kind of a Native American figure, I guess. Although I don't know. If yeah, you but know. he's a Mexican actor. Well, and I know him from a lot he? of things. Yeah, I think I he know was, he was in. He was I think in. He was in Star Wars and Dexter. He was definitely in Dexter. He was, I think he was in The Phantom Menace. He's an American actor who's born in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, wait, do you know who he is? He's Leah's, uh, uh, Princess Leia's adoptive father. Ah, he's got Puerto Rican mother, so there we go. Um, so I think that that means that he gets cast quite a lot in sort of those kind of Hispanic roles and things like that. He was Miguel Prado in Dexter. Yeah, yeah. yeah good actor, um, not doing very well here, I would say. But he says, Geronimo says that he actually did the murder. So we know that it can't be him because the film's just pretty much started so yeah so we kind of he's probably not going to be the one who actually murdered him but he's like also the only person that really gets any over screen time than the the main three characters well there's John Lennon John Lennon gets some screen time obviously there's Geronimo um, there's Eloise there's Amanda Plummer, the person who you might remember, her most memorable role to me anyway, is in Pulp Fiction. She's with Tim Roth in the diner, and I mean, I won't quote her because she's very, very profane, but she tells everyone to, to get down with the gun. You remember her? She's like screaming and shouting. I've not seen it. Oh, right, well, yeah. Well, the, she... I'm, I'm not, I, I've said this before, I'm not a film guy. Uh, I try to watch and appreciate films, but the idea of sitting down to watch a film is kind of daunting to me. Well, it should be after this, after this experience of the Million Dollar Hotel. Mm. Anyway, she's very shouty and loud and tedious in this. And um, there's also an old woman who kind of figures as a mother figure to um, Eloise. Eloise yeah. Yeah. Did you recognise her? No. She is the old lady from Titanic. I thought you were going to say Keenan and Kel then. <laughs> I don't know why. I got I got a strong feeling that you were going to say Keenan and Kel. Uh, fair enough, the one who uh, loses her pearl necklace. Uh, what? Doesn't she lose? It's a it's the old a, lady. That yeah, the diamond. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, the star. Of the, the old Kate Blanchett, not Kate Blanchett. Kate Winslet. Bloody hell! This is very <laughs> misinformed, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's called the Heart of the Ocean, and she doesn't lose it. She, she, she does lose it, but then she drops it, doesn't she? she oh yeah, it, she throws it overboard. What yeah. a waste! I think, I think it's a. There very... is an alternate ending to the Titanic. I think. What? what, what? They get to New York and everything's fine. Is there? They didn't film I that. don't know if if I've made that up, but I feel like there's something about an alternate ending to the mm. Titanic on the special edition. Well, sounds made up. Um, so now, Sk- obviously they don't get to New York. That was me being, you know, a silly Billy. But certainly are. Um, I think there is an alternate ending to the Titanic. Where she goes, do you know what? Probably it's a bit bit valuable this to drop in the ocean. Might actually invest it. I mean, I mean, I'm not very long, but it might might do some good in the world. That's indulging in a stupid fantasy. I think it's a great film, Titanic. There was room enough on that thing for two. 
Right, so anyway, Skinner starts terrorising the residents. Um, he starts messing around with the toilets and waterworks, and he try he's trying to basically freak out the, in his words, the freaks. So he's trying to out-zany the zany people, and he realises that his tactics are not really going to work here because it, it's they're already messed up. Their life is already upside down, so that's not going to work. And I think they just do a lot of things just to have the shot. So I think it's, it's a bit like Bono saying or someone saying, wouldn't it be great if we have a shot of the hotel with water coming down everywhere? And it doesn't really make any sense and it's not really gone back to, but there we there we have it. Um, yeah, it doesn't, does Skinner do that? Yeah, Skinner's, Skinner's yeah, yeah. the one who's orchestrating it because he wants information, damn it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, there's Then they hold a meeting around a snooker table or a pool table in which there's far too much shouting. I think it's just, it's like a Will Ferrell film, this but. There's moments where I find Will Ferrell's shouting funny. There's just too much shouting in this film. I don't think he's funny. I, I, I'll hold my hands up and say, I first time I saw Anchorman, I thought it was hilarious. Mm. It's, it's dated over time, but there was just too much shouting, basically. Um, so the are we going through the whole film? Because this is this, we're I'm, actually going slower than the I'm film. Gonna, I'm going to speed. I'm going to speed up. Right. So okay. anyway, there's. The film carries on, and they work. They work out that they're going to try and sell some of these tar paintings and pass them off as uh, either Izzy's or Geronimo's. I can't remember which ones. Pass them off as Geronimo's, but Izzy did them. No, yeah. is that no? No, they are Geronimo's. They're trying to pass them off, off as, as Izzy's because the dead artist, uh, the, the 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 art of a dead artist, can be sold for more. Yes, good. Yeah, and that leads us to this shadowy figure who comes in with the glasses. Who I think right. So a guy turns up. He speaks in really pretentious terms. He's clearly got an overinflated ego, and he's got wraparound glasses on. Why didn't Bono play that part? Like he could have played the art dealer guy. Uh, the we yeah, well, maybe Bono can't act. Um, he's no Larry. I've not seen any Larry films yet. I'd like to watch that one he's in with Donald Sutherland. Uh, yeah, Sutherland. Uh, I'd like to see that. Done. I mean, but, based on the video for Electrical Storm, he's not that good at acting. Is Bono uncredited in this because he is just Bono? He's got a cameo, and he sticks out. Like a sore thumb. Yeah. I remember I was going to ask people on Twitter, oh, when does Bono turn up so I don't miss it? You're not going to miss it. No. He's, he's just sat there, Bono, at, at, in... It, like It's almost like he's waving at the camera. It was a weird time for him, that. He kept turning up in, like, Charles Bukowski uh, documentaries, and it, it was it was just a weird time for... You know, if, if you're a U2 fan, then imagine, mm. like, it being now in between albums, mm. and Bono's turning up in weird films and uh, documentaries of... Alcoholic poets and oh, Charles Bukowski was very good. Yeah, well, he was mates with him. But so he's he's just as credited as Bono, or it's just a cameo. I, I don't even know if he's credited. I think he's credited as maybe Man at Bar. I heard once, yeah, Man uncredited man at, man as at Man at bar, in Hotel right. Lobby, and Tim Roth is uncredited as Izzy Goldkiss. I think for reasons so that he wouldn't be revealed, because um, it was quite. A, it did wake me up a bit. I was like, oh, Tim Roth, mm. and then he does some actual acting, and then he's dead. Yeah, I think Bono is uh, in Gangs of New York, and I've never seen him, but you can hear him in one scene. How can you? Because he's he's a, a singer. Elevation. He's, he's, he's singing on the street, you know, yeah. just old Irish jigs and stuff like that. Mm. Um, if anyone does have, is it an Irish jig? That's um, a dance, surely. Yeah, but you would sing a song to accompany an Irish jig, I imagine. All right. Well, if but as I say, I've never seen him. So if he's actually in it, can you like send me a screenshot? Yes, or like a or tell us when. Um... Sorry, <laughs> that's my phone. Well, wow, that, that was quick, wasn't it? <laughs> the fans have <laughs> stepped up. Um, if yeah, if you can send us like a timestamp of when that is, if it is a thing, then please do. 
So um, they're trying to sell the tar paintings to make a little bit of money, which is which is fair enough, I guess. Um, and again, Tom Tom has to sort of tell us what's happening rather than us figure out what's actually going on here. Yeah, I mean, because so really, I mean, really, it's a very basic plot. It's a who there's a murder at the beginning, and it's a who done it. Well, is it a murder or is it? It's suicide? basically murder on the Orient Express, but slower. I don't know. I saw the last adaptation of that film, and that, that was awful. Oh, I thought it was decent, actually. What the Kenneth Branagh one? Yeah, let's not let's not review that one anyway. Oh, and um, one thing I did notice about this film is it's very literal sometimes. So, in terms of, of what we call diegetic and extra diegetic <laughs> music, now what I mean by that is sometimes you hear something on the soundtrack, and you're like, okay, fine, someone's playing some um, some sort of horn. Okay, and then you like a trumpet, and then you the camera pans across, or a, or a, a one of those pipes, Ulian pipes, pipes yeah. Ulian pipes. Well, yeah, people cool. are always playing them in LA. Yeah, and the the camera pans across, and it's like, oh, there's a man playing the music that you can hear now in the film. I thought that was a soundtrack, but it's meant to be in the film, and it kind of annoys me when that happens. It's like, it, why? Don't do that switch. It's annoying. You don't just because there's trumpet doesn't mean there has to be someone literally playing a trumpet in there. And I, I think it's just to break things up, isn't it? Like to bring things from the the scene to the. Maybe it hooks people in a bit. Uh, I mean, I noticed it, but it didn't improve the story. Yeah. So yeah. So here we go. It's a murder mystery. There's a there's a rabble of un, you know of uh, undesirable characters. There's a detective on the scene who also may have done it. There's a billionaire dad which doesn't really care. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty basic, you know. Yeah. A to B storytelling at the minute. Yeah, tells all this time. So, um, Skinner um turns up and actually saves uh Eloise from being assaulted by three men, and um I guess we get a bit of sympathy for him because he's he's doing a nice action and he gets damaged. He he gets knocked onto his back and that shot in slow mo seems like oh look how painful it is, and he's he's knackered his back again. So he has to sort of recoup. And then he starts spying on people and bugging people, so a bit, a bit less, um, a bit less sympathy for him there. I'd done that first. Yeah, he he doesn't really follow rules very. He doesn't really follow an order very, very well here. Then we have Bono's cameo, which is ridiculous, and um, Eloise then tries to get some information from Tom Tom whilst uh, Mel Gibson is listening in, and um, we have this sort of question over whether she, whose side she's on, or is she trying to. What is she trying to find out and who is she trying to find out for? It's not particularly riveting stuff, but there we go. Um, there was a moment here which I really liked, however, and there's a bit where Tom Tom quotes Izzy here. And he basically says, he quotes this poem which he said Izzy told him, which he says, It's in the eyes with which we see, it's the sinner in the saint, it's the light inside the paint. And I just thought that's quite a nice... Um, it's a light inside the paint. It's almost like a Bono line, really, or lyric. And that idea of, you know, when you look at a painting that is beautiful to you, it almost seems to come alive. It's a light inside or trapped in the paint. It's the closest this film's pretentious statements made with smooth jazz in the background comes to actually touching something in me. So, there we go. I, yeah. Uh, uh, is that the film? Not yet. No, we've still got some more things to do. Right, so um, we have the art critic turn up and he tells them that these tar paintings are garbage, but they're valuable garbage. Oh, they, no, I just realised that you wanted Bono to play that. Yeah. That's, no, yeah. there's no way. It would have been great. Bono doing a plummy English accent and saying, it's valuable garbage. You know, I think it would be great. I don't think Bono can do accents, can he? Uh, he could try. He's got his Paul McCartney voice from the early 80s. Yeah. <laughs> um... Thank you for coming out in the rain. <laughs> yep. Um, any more? Ah, oh, that'll pop up. 
So Tom Tom is almost like a puppy um, around Eloise and other characters. He then makes this dramatic transformation to Tom. He wants to be called Tom. Yeah, um, why? Why is that? I don't know. I think again, it's it's this, it's a state. It's sort of a gesture, a, a meaning which doesn't really. I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he was felt a bit too childlike before as Tom Tom, and he's he wants to be Tom. Mm. Yeah. Again, I I don't. Sorry yeah. if you like this film, guys, and and we're being a bit. Dismissive I, I think of it, but... I think some people really did like it. On um, well, uh, I'd like but, to know but, what's going on. We've, we've come to this twenty years later, yeah. right? Oops. So, yeah. it's it's different than you know. I there are terrible movies that we like, but because it signifies a certain time in our life. Oh yeah, plenty of them. Like Lord of the Rings, for example. <laughs> Like that came that out unknown cult movie. That no, no, but one that likes. came out. It's a it's a film with its uh, uh, flaws, particularly the the later two, because it's mostly just CGI and green screen. Mm-hmm. But we, I think, we appreciate that film because we were there at the time and yeah. it was so exciting. And it, when it came out, Fellowship of the Ring was one of the biggest cinematic achievements. Yeah, I see what ever. you're saying. So it, it it holds a place in your heart, not because it's necessarily good and lauded, but because yeah, well, yeah, fair enough. Uh, so if we're if we're stomping all over your memories here, guys, sorry, but um, I'd like to know what things you find. I think if good it came it. out ten years earlier, and it or, or even five years earlier, mm. it could have done really well with that Twin Peaks, uh, David Lynch kind of crowd. Yeah, but I, the thing is, Lynch. For all his flaws, I'm not not, so, not saying he has to direct it, but it, you know it's in a similar vein. Yeah, I just think, like you said before, it would have to be more off the wall than what we get here. What we get here is is tedious zaniness. A it's lot too, of the time. yeah, it's too it's too safe. And I think the 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 example of that paradigmatic thing of that would be that stupid John Lennon portrayal by Peter Stummer. Great actor, awful role, and just so badly. So badly done. So what you're saying is, if any of our listeners are making films and they need someone to play John Lennon, then they need to get me yeah, to me. play John Lennon? As long as I don't have to do anything, that's... that's well, that's you heard it here first, guys, on Review 2. Johnny would uh, like me to play John Lennon, so if you're making any films, uh, get get in touch. And we all know who could be his co-star as Paul McCartney. Well, I, I could do that as well, so... We've got the perfect actor. She's one of the best of her generation. Who? Well, Murder, She Wrote. Ah! Ben yeah. Nobs and Boomsticks. She's still alive. Probably not. Um, so, so Tom Tom and Mel Gibson go out to lunch. Again, if you look at, look at these scenes just on paper, it doesn't scream great cinema. But there's a great bit here where Mel Gibson's trying to sort of coax Tom Tom into confessing or giving him info or telling him something about it because he's getting nowhere with his case. And then Gibson... Um, and him end up having this scrap in the middle of the in the middle of the restaurant. And probably my favourite line of the whole film, this. He throws him onto the floor and pins him down, and there's food gone everywhere. And Mel Gibson pulls out his badge and goes, FBI here, enjoy your meals. Like as in that that's the directive. Not FBI here, get down, stay in your seats. Enjoy your meals. It's like, alright, I guess I will. There's a an odd man assaulting another man, but fair enough. So yeah, that was that was a bit that woke me up again a little bit. Um, Geronimo is implicated. He goes to prison. Tom is encouraged to uh, to confess. There's some terrible punning. We learn about the arm coming out of his back far, far too late. And then um, everything sort of comes to a head with this big sale of Izzy's or Geronimo's or whoever's tar paintings at the hotel. Um, the old woman, you can tell I'm going quick. The old woman makes up Eloise and makes her um, into that beautiful... Uh, in that dress, you know, that's apparently an old dress. Yeah. That is that gives you that amazing 
picture on the front of the album cover and I think if you saw that, you'd think, wow, this looks like a good film, and you'd be yeah, wrong. It, it makes me think that it, it also, it, it made me kind of think of a furry tale. Maybe it is a furry tale. Yeah, and I will say, every single scene that's shot on top of that roof is amazing. I think it's so well done. Like, the lighting and the, you know, the bit, if you watch the very start of the film, the very end, you'd, you'd think, wow, this is great. It's just that middle bit, that sort of, you know, like, hour and a bit in the middle, which needs removing from the film. I'm just wondering now if Bono would have auditioned for the John Lennon part. Um, I don't think they would have let him play it. I bet he wanted to though. <sighs> well, he, well, he did. He did. Do, Silly little Paul. He did do a turn as someone singing "I Am the Walrus." Yeah, and then there's Peter, a reason I've not mentioned that. And Peter Stamerum sings it later on, and I just think it's again they're putting something in front of you and saying this means something, and you're going, "Okay, film, what does it mean?" It's like, well, I don't know, but it's something, and it's the Beatles, and but it's and it's the Beatles. Yeah, um, we're here, we're back. So the old woman makes up Eloise. Um, again, she seems to be casting roles that are all about diamonds and things like that. Please get to the end of this plot. Okay, one good thing I noticed: um, Tom Tom gives out drinks at the start of the film. He does that with champagne later, so it establishes him as a nice character, and we learn. Dun, 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 that he actually let even even though we were thought his confession was wrong he actually did let Tim Roth fall off the roof <laughs> so he didn't push him he let him fall off so Tim Roth tells him that he made love probably not the right way to explain it but he you know has assaulted Eloise and it meant nothing because she's worth nothing and Tom Tom says no he is she is worth something and that's why he let Tim Roth fall to his death that's what I think anyway I think that's how I read the film yeah um so Tim Roth turns up he actually does a good job of reading his lines, unlike everyone else in this film. And my summation of this film is there's just not enough there. Yeah. It's... I, I think a lot is... I think I, you could read this film with a lot of it being um, dream sequences. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you you really know what's happening and what's not happening. Yeah. there's it, it, There is a bit of confusion in it, but... There's not that kind of postmodern playing around with narratives or perspectives and things like that where you actually don't know which reality you're looking at, which would make this a bit more interesting, at least. Yeah. So it's just sort of, again, it's that idea of just because you can do something like that, let's make a film about this leap. And, you know, a film director's got this line that, you know, after I jumped, it occurred to me, yes, that's a, a film based on a jump, good. Yes, that's an interesting line. It does drag you in. But that can't be 50% of the work. You have to then actually figure out a good story. And again, it seems like Bono scribbled this out in the back of a fag packet, took 10 years for it to percolate in his head and passed it on to someone else. They made a film, they spent 8 million, it didn't make very much money. And now it's got this weird legacy in U2 fandom. Yeah, it does. Um, And and it still seems to be a bit of a curio to even the most ardent of U2 fans. I've been a U2 fan for how many years that over 20 years no wait no about 20 years about 20 years also about two decades i this is the second time i've seen this film it's got bono in it they were very heavily involved in the soundtrack which is good and which we'll get to we purposely not mentioned it because we're going to get do another section on that and i've just not been interested in it and it's got good actors in it they've got Mm. very well-known respected actors well i uh, throughout my fandom whenever the films come up I've always heard more people saying more negative things than positive things about it. Yeah, indeed. Which is fine. So I have I just left this film alone. I, I felt like I've got the ground beneath her feet. 
It's absolutely fantastic. If there was anything else that was as good or better, people would have mentioned it to me. So I was happy to leave it. Um, and I put off watching the film for ages. It takes me a long time to build myself up. Mm. And then I watched it, and I'll probably watch it again. I'll it, Really? It wasn't as bad as I was preparing myself for. Well, I mean, just to gather a couple of the um, of the opinions that we've got on on Twitter, Paul Maidman says, Stateless is a beautiful tune, which I agree with, mm-hmm. um, but the film is pretty grim. We've also got Jeff Morton, it's sort of echoing echoing that, pretty much, um, and also echoing Mel Gibson, because he says, weird-ass film, to be honest, which it is, and Mel Gibson himself said, said it is. Um, we did have some people who enjoyed it, so I presume the people who actually wanted it to, to occur. I know Jenny from the Garden Tarts enjoyed it. I just, I mean, obviously, I, I like the idea of people enjoying stuff, and I just want to know what what am I missing about this film? What because I might be just completely misreading it. Is it meant to be some sort of comedy or something like that? I think it's a dark comedy, certainly. But, but a lot of the humour though just seems a bit cloying. Like you know the all the stuff. All, all, I can't get over that John Lennon thing. It's so tedious. I can. I can. Yeah, I can imagine someone watching this and and being in fits of laughter. And actually really enjoying it. I think mm-hmm. it's got that level to it where once you get it, you're just like, oh, all right. But you can read it as a love story, as a as just a throwaway murder mystery. Yeah. You know, there's lots of, lots of different readings. I do want to go back and I want to watch it. Not immediately, but maybe in like six to seven months, something like that. I mean, politically, there's some nice things about it. There's a, a group of underrepresented people, although I'd say they are caricatures rather than actual characters. Yeah. There is a... There is a a leading pair where it's not all just based around sexual desire um and there is an obvious kind of it's good because we're, we're going to walk away from this still thinking about certain scenes and trying to figure out things mm. like i can't get over that idea of dream sequences yeah um which i think it's just mel gibson's character in it just bothers me well, I mean, Mel Gibson just bothers me in general, but I mean, there you go. <laughs> Melvin. Melvin. Um, he'd hate that. He'd, he'd he'd really want to punch you on the nose if you said that to him. Because well, of Melvin. M- Melvin Gibson. Yeah, he'd yeah. shout abuse like he is an absolute arse. No, um, no, and no disrespect to anyone that is called Melvin. No, uh, but he he wouldn't like it. Yeah, just just perhaps so far in history, Melvin hasn't been the top choice for a movie star's name. Well, same thing. And with- I think that's that's. Do a change. Yeah, yeah. Um, same thing with Mervyn. Like there was in <laughs> you know in uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, they make the joke that he's called Mervyn. Everyone laughs. But one of my favourite ever authors, Mervyn Peake, is called Mervyn. So How weird is that? So um, I grew up loving that film, as did my brother. But my brother's ten years older than me, mm. and we were having an argument one day. I because I was I, I could have sworn till I was blue in the face that. Prince John was played by a young Mel Gibson. And I was so positive and so sure about this that I bet my brother 50 quid, and I was only about 14 mm. at this, I bet my brother 50 quid that if we looked online it would be Mel Gibson in the in the role of uh, Prince John in Robin Hood Men in Tights. And it wasn't. No. Uh, Do you know the actual actor or is this going to be uh, one of those unsatisfying I've seen, stories? I've seen him in Curb. He's in, I know he's in Curb, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm quite a lot. He's a famous actor, but I couldn't remember his name off the top of my head. Well, let's leave that leave that mystery there. And I think 
Well, I mean, what better way to end a review of the Million Dollar Hotel than with a quick discussion of Robin Hood Men in Tights? <laughs> well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna go for a few adverts now, and when we come back, we'll discuss the soundtrack. Yeah, so that's the end of part one. If you do have any more comments on the Million Dollar Hotel, please leave them. And remember, you can always email us, Tyler, on, or how can they get in touch? The best way to contact us is on Twitter at rev underscore u2. Uh, if you're a rebel type guy and you'd like to send us a long form email, then you can do it's review2contact at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, just search for the Review 2 podcast. Uh, SoundCloud and iTunes, search for the Review 2 podcast. If you want to join us on SoundCloud, um, just put just put review two into Google. We've done a really good job on the SEO of that. So like, I, I literally all you have to do is put review two into Google, and anything you want is well, there. Well done us, and well done you guys for getting through an hour of us talking about a film that we don't particularly like. In the next part, we'll be talking about the soundtrack, which is definitely, in my opinion, the best part of the Million Dollar Hotel. Welcome back. You've made it all the way to the B side of this episode. Or what what I would like to call the A side, really, well, because it's the better the, side, yeah. It's the better side. So maybe it is the B side. Uh, and um, so we're just going to go do what we usually do for review two, go track by track through the album. This is a great album if you haven't listened to it in a while or ever. And on YouTube, I'd just like to give a shout out. Um, this is how myself and Johnny both got access to the sound track. And it's, it's the Million Dollar Hotel Motion Picture 2000 cassette tape rip full album U2 Bono Daniel and it's by is that Get Lo-Fi? Get Lo-Fi. Get yeah. Lo-Fi. So okay. great cassette full albums. Uh, I bet he wasn't expecting but you know here she was expecting a shout out but there we go. And yeah it was, it was enjoyable listening to the kind of hiss of this song and the whole album coming in on cassette. Yeah that experience of uh, you know pressing play and then there's still some wait time. Yeah. And he really got the idea of the 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 tape and turning it over. I when on when they go to side two, I don't know if the I would have actually liked to hear you know someone taking it out, putting it back in. Mm. But I think it just is a rip of the actual music. Yeah. Um, and they, I mean, they have gone to the effort of putting the picture of the front of the cassette and then the back. So they've turned that over, which is pretty cool. Yeah, you you'll know you're on the B side if the, the images change basically. Yeah, and this seems to be a good way to listen to the million dollar hotel because a lot of this is what you describe as maybe late night blue darker jazzy lounge music so the hiss kind of sets that almost seductive kind of sinister almost vibe sometimes mm. um the things that kept going through my head and i put this on twitter is this album is both starry and also sultry so there's there was a time when I think Bono was very keen on this idea of doing an album that was all jazzy and a bit like in the vein of if you were that velvet Too dress. Too jazzy? Well, I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> um, and I think there was a song on here which essentially shows what the best version of that could be. And I don't think it would get any better than that. I'm not a massive jazz fan and usually U2 plus jazz equals... Well, Sorry, Johnny, can great. you close your window? I think I feel like we're taking off. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's a ridiculous amount of noise. There you go, the airlock is shut now. So, we're going to start with The Ground Beneath Her Feet. We've obviously reviewed and talked about this song on several yeah. occasions. It's Tyler's favourite U2 song still? Uh, y- yes, yeah. Okay. It's either, it's always either that or Ultraviolet, um, but this song certainly has... I mean, both songs have a power over me. 
Yeah. I really like this song is is the only way to say it without laboring the point. And it's an odd way to start this album because it feels like you're just listening to the end of All You Can't Leave Behind, or at least the Japanese and UK edition thereof. Oh, so you agree that it's on the album now? It's a special edition right, bonus okay. track. It's not on the album. Just try and track where you're at. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think this song, because it's written by Salman Rushdie, or maybe it's just in my mind because I like it so much, it seems different in that uh, it kind of seems like it stands alone, like a an electrical storm or an ordinary love. Mm. Because the, the, they're, they're just allowed to stand on their own as songs and as singles and not as part of a, something bigger as yeah. an album. Um, so I think that displacement away from you two and onto a film really works for this song. However, I was really shocked that it comes so so soon in the in the film. I feel like that's a moment you could build to. Does it come soon in the film? I think it's pretty soon, yeah. I thought it was over the ending credits. I think it's in the beginning as well. Maybe. Um, I can't remember the exact order in which these songs appear in the film. I remember noticing them when they came in. I think, it, uh, yeah, I, I noticed it mo- most at, at the start. And I, really, on the film, it sounded like a very different version. It see- and Oh, it- yeah, I think, they'd, I think they had done a little bit of remixing or re-editing. I was wondering that question. Is this the same edit? Because some of the... Little, it's, little yeah, pops and stuff. Yeah. They seem a bit louder, which often happens in a single mix. They tend to dial up the superficial sort of bells and whistly kind of bits of it, and or make riffs a bit more prominent to make them stick in your head more for radio play. I kind of wish that I had free access to that version just so I could give that version a review as well. Mm. Doubtless it would be really good, but um, I feel like I'm reviewing a different version than the version that's in the song, yeah. in the film, but not to the soundtrack well I mean I think the best way to go about this apart from just just reiterating that we both love the song it's got one of the best climaxes of a U2 song ever and that Danny Lanois the the steel pedal that he's using here reminds it's it's what U2 can do when they're at their best when they're combining old elements and new stuff um, because Danny Lanois sound takes you back to Joshua Tree era kind of things Danois Danois sorry uh, Danois steel pedal it brings you back to that but then obviously it's a very modern for 2000s you know it sounds slick and new and fresh as well yeah. so that's crazy that it's 20 years old yeah and still completely fresh still yeah. in date um, um like yeah. an old bottle of uh, marmite um so yeah i'm a bit disappointed that i don't have the the version that's actually in the film a uh, great way to kick this album off um I've just had a thought, actually. Maybe because this film didn't do that well, mm. that's why it ended up on All That You Can't Leave Behind. You mean off All You Can't Leave Behind? As an extra track yeah. on yeah. Um, t- two regions worth of albums. Possibly, but I mean, if you but if you think that it's it's better to have Peace on Earth on an album <laughs> than All You Can't Leave Behind, then you need your head examining. Um, and there's gonna sorry, be... Look, Peace on Earth's a good song for us that we should all listen to and learn from at the moment. Well, yeah, I agree, I agree with the sentiment. It's just not a very good song. Anyway, um, so I thought we could talk about this song as it applies to the movie, but I kept coming up short with a way to actually graft it on. Now, it's not that a soundtrack song needs to match what's going on in the movie exactly, but if you're reading this, you're meant to be seeing it as Tom's obsession over Eloise... I or you know because he worships her it for some general reason rather than a, just a sexual reason which is how she's um, seen by everyone else in the film 
Is it that? But then it, but it could then... be the landscape as well. Like the, the, the million dollar hotel create, you know, creates the the scene. Mm. It's not even Los Angeles, really. It's that. It's that place. It's that hotel. It gives this lifeline to these uh, elderly people. Mm. Uh, the these um, outcasts. Outcasts. You know, perhaps immigrants. You know, perhaps mm. people who are in the country illegally. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's great. Well, there's one from Liverpool. Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Um, so you've got all these people that are brought together. In, by being in this one place and they, yeah. they create this life that they're somewhat contented with. I'm just thinking though, this it, it's kind of a, mi- a mishmash though because obviously The Ground Beneath Her Feet is not only lyrics written by Rushdie but it's it's to do with a novel written by Rushdie, one that I've not read. Um, so I don't really know how it, if, if it's meant to even relate to the Million Dollar Hotel, apart from just having a vibe and a vague set of connections. And just trying to see it from a different, you know, angle. I think yeah. the Million Dollar Hotel has this, uh, it's almost like a character within the film. Mm. And when you go to different rooms, like there's a, a room with Eloise and Tom Tom, and it's it's kind of like they've fallen in love or, you know, they've they've mm. found a little... Because it's never explicitly said that they, you know, got together. Mm. I, I think, think that, Did I they think, kiss in the film? I think, yeah, I think there's that, but it's but it's meant to be like a soulmate bond or a friendship bond or yeah. a platonic thing. Well, what's I, interesting yeah. about that is that it's a completely empty room with just a bed and those two in it. Mm. And, and there's a small mechanical robot dog as well. Is that in Tom Tom's room though, or is that oh, in? Oh, yeah, it might be in her. Okay. That's this is one of the you know vacant rooms in the hotel. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And it's just it's kind of a, a strange scene because it's there's no creature comforts around. It's just them two on the bed, and you can't figure out what's going on. Yeah, and it's we're also not tra- I enjoyed that. We're not trained by Hollywood to not see that in any other context but sexual as well. You so it's always like okay, man, woman in room with bed alone, you know things are going to happen. Whereas the, the film sort of makes a space for that kind of friendship. In my experience, vastly different. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just like the, the different parts of the hotel seem to have different personalities and this 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 foreboding hotel, really, um, it can either make them or break them. Mm. And I, I found that I found that interesting. So maybe the ground beneath the feet can be applied to the hotel. It, it's also, yeah, it's also... Although the ground beneath the feet would be the basement. <laughs> <laughs> the jumping off the top of it and people keep falling down that seems to reflect the ground beneath her feet as well like to me yeah. i think that's i don't know it's got this vague kind of connection and i will start to whenever i hear this song now connected to this film she's barefooted as well isn't she on the album cover let's have a little peek i believe so yeah certainly looks like it very striking album cover as we said last time i, I was... know i know a pair of nude feet when i see them right okay <laughs> I was wondering if there's any kind of symbolism or hidden message in this RW being here, or if it's literally just that those are the spur letters. I, I think it's a tribute to Robbie Williams. Could be that, yeah. Or, or Robin Williams. Yeah, or... or yeah, well, lots of people with R, RW. Ray Can't... Winston. <laughs> Million Dollar Hotel. <laughs> Muppet. Right, anyway, so I've not got anything more to say about the ground beneath the feet. By the way, that's the worst impression that's been on this whole podcast. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. Well, maybe some of your old David Bowies were pretty bad. Anyway, let's. Uh, to anyone who thinks that was a very underwhelming review of a fantastic song, go and listen to our original review about it. Yeah, do... the All That You Can't Leave Behind episode, yeah. the U2 Top 10s episode. 
Uh, we gush a lot. There. Yeah, exactly. So, Never Let Me Go. This one is written by Bono and Nicholas Klein. I imagine he's credited there, Nicholas Klein, because of Tom Tom's narration. And this was the point that we talked about. Bono had this idea of someone jumping from a hotel or a roof to another roof across a gap. And Nicholas Klein happened to have this opening line on the lines of, after I jumped, it occurred to me. I'm really enjoying this story, but I'm also, I also really enjoyed it an hour ago when you told it. Well, yeah, but I'm saying this is where it actually comes in the song, okay? So I'll read out what Tom Tom says. He says, well, after I jumped, it occurred to me. Life is beautiful. Life is the best. Full of magic, beauty, opportunity. He says opportunity. And television. And surprises. Lots of surprises, yeah. Then there's the best stuff, of course. Better than anything anyone ever made up, because it's real. And then Bono's sultry voice comes in as he starts to sing this jazz song. This, I would say, is, you know what I was saying before about the best version of the Bono jazz late night album? I think this is that song. I don't think it could be done any better. And I think he would only, if he had a whole album full of these kind of songs, I think it would very quickly get either repetitive or boring, or he would start doing something that isn't very interesting. So what do you make of the song then, Tyler? Well, sat here right now, I'm reminded of the Michael Hutchins' Slide Away song. Mm -hmm. It's got a similar dark feeling to it. Yeah, and Bono's lyrics are eerily similar as well. Like, uh, I I, I think his lyrics in Slide Away, uh, I just couldn't let you go, I just couldn't let it go, Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I will catch you. There's some lyrics, something like that. Yeah, it's really and it's a really nice song. I've just not listened to it for a while to you know yeah, yeah. repeat it verbatim. Um, I think it's nice, um, and I hate that because nice normally stops a review dead in its tracks. Yeah, it sounds it's like adequate or background music. Yeah, it works well in the film. I think this as a non-diegetic piece of music. Uh, well, yeah, well, it depends. That's, if the, one, that's the, way, well, the one where you can't see the source. Yeah, but I was wondering if you can see the source because that trumpet guy might turn up as soon as it ah, comes yeah, on. Yeah. He'd like walk through the. Or Bono might sing uh, sing it when he's in the bar, you know. Mm. It would it wouldn't make him any any more obviously sticking out in the film. We should mention actually the Million Dollar Hotel Band. So it's it's relatively easy to see who's doing what on here. I would say. Um, so we've got Brian Blade, who sounds like a very cool drummer uh, on drums. Greg Cohen on bass. Um, Adam. Don Beat Synthesizers Programming, Brian Eno, of course, Bill Frizzell, John Hassel, who I think is somewhat of a legend in trumpet circles, uh, Danois is doing a bit of guitars, vocals and pedal steel, all that kind of stuff, and then we have obviously you 2 filling in different bits. This is one of the songs where we have basically Bono, a, a lyricist, and those other musicians, and I think you can tell this isn't Adam's style of bass, this is very much a, well to me it sounds like an upright double bass jazz bass kind of thing it doesn't sound like adam's way of playing either it sounds it sounds a bit adam and larry are similar in that they're very good but they don't play in a very usual maestro kind of way they learnt in a bot's job or a kind of military way they're self-taught until the mid 90s well yeah and and larry's obviously got that military background which mm. you, you can hear in the way that he plays and how he approaches it which is not your standard rock or jazz does, drum. does he actually have a military background or does does he have a military he, style he has a military style because he was in a marching boys band right okay so he would have had to keep the, the boys band yeah exactly i remember yeah. from slain yeah. <laughs> um so i think one of the things that does work well in this song is the verses are in the second person so 
there's that repeated you, which is nice at the start of the album to bring you into the actual experience of the, of the listening. And then Bono switches to first person in the chorus. So maybe I was blind or I, I might have closed my eyes. Maybe I was dumb. And he, he builds up to this hook, which is never let me go. And it just seemed like it's got a great hook, this song. Yeah, there's some lyrics I do want to pick up with you. Which one? Maybe you've seen this coming. Uh, you run from love and don't believe unless it catches you by the heel and even then you struggle. Mm-hmm. You can run from love but if it's really love it will find you. Mm-hmm. Catch you by the heel. Well, yeah, Bono recycles stuff quite a lot. I know, I know. But it's, it's that's... When I heard that, I was like, oh, go somewhere else. I think it's fine though. I mean, because... It... In the movie, like you wouldn't have noticed because obviously that song didn't come out for a few years yet. But mm. I mean... I, it's one of those occasions where it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb to me, but I can. Bono, he he does recycle things, and mm. sometimes that works really well. Um, so this song not grab you then, because I mean, I think in the, in the movie it's fine. Mm. Um, I would listen to this song outside of this movie now. Uh, not this one for me oh, personally. Right, okay. I mean, I just feel like it's the best version of. If you have to say Bono, if we got a horrible, you know, kind of released, Bono is doing a jazz album. Right? Then, yeah, but it's not. That's I. I. I wouldn't listen to a jazz, a jazz album. I might Bono's. I might be coerced into it and then end up enjoying it, but I wouldn't go yeah. to a jazz album just for me. You know. I. I would say no. Neither would I either. Um. I would check it out as a curiosity and probably be listening through you know my fingers, so to speak, because I'd be worried about Bono doing like some weird scat singing or something, or, or you know, just just making a fool of himself as Bono. <laughs> it's a possibility. Um, but what, what I will say is his singing in this song, it, it sort of makes me incredibly happy, but also a bit sad because the effortlessness of the way he sings, like the falsetto that he drops in later on, it almost sounds like it's on a whim. It sounds light and like he's not worried too much about the song. I'll practice it a hundred times in a sound booth. And he just glides into that falsetto in a way that, to be honest, he can't do that anymore. Um, 20, no, 20 I, years on, it's very But he'd struggled with his voice throughout the 90s. And I think he, when they were recording this album, mm. or All That You Can't Leave Behind, and making this film, then he, his voice had got to a, pl- a good, healthy place and he knew how to manage it. Yeah. Um, and maybe that was always going to be short-lived. I think he still, re- he still knows his voice very well. Yeah, and he, he commands it. Amazingly, considering yeah. how it develops. I mean, it's not like he's been through one of those weird, like Bob Dylan transformations where he's absolutely. It's a beautiful day, dude. It's a beautiful day, dude. It's a beautiful day. That is my Bob Dylan impression. <laughs> well, you've beaten my Ray Winston for the worst impression. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to Stateless. We had quite a few people saying that they enjoyed Stateless and that it was a beautiful song. Mm. And this is one that I do remember from looking back at. Um, you know, B-sides, curios, uh, miscellaneous things that are not on the album. Misc. And, yeah, and enjoying it a lot. This is a U2 song. Um, it's lyrics by Bono, music by U2. And I think this was one of the things that Ed said that he was happy to, the band were happy to let a few B-sides go onto this album. Um, so I think we've got the pedal steel, which I, I for me, this, this song links back to ground beneath her feet it sounds like it was made in in the same sort of environment and i think it has a really infectious guitar and bass hook so the you know and and the guitar reinforcing that but it's a bit it's an odd sounding song for you too it's slightly off kilter it feels like 
Like it doesn't have a standard baseline. You know, like with Be- Beautiful Day, you go, it's it's very much just on the dot. Yeah, I feel like this is written for the film, like the Spider-Man music. You know, those songs are written for the the. They may have given away some B-side material. Yeah, but it's very much a song. It's the end product is a song written for a certain medium. Well, I mean, I mean, I think the thing is with this song is, it's it does fit with the actual meaning of the film. So I've got no home in this world, just gravity, luck, and time. So we have a number of outcast figures like Tom Tom, like Eloise, like everyone basically. Um, Tom Tom, he's just got gravity. That's true because he's going to whack into the pavement by the end of the film, and so has Izzy, played by Tim Roth, and. So it does fit, but the thing is that the song is quite loose anyway, so it could fit to anything, really. It's Yeah, I mean, I, I did wonder, because I, I think as somebody, I, I suppose like a lot of people in the world who, you know, have grown up with American TV and, you know, sitcoms and films and America be, you know, playing this big part in my life, even though I'm, you know, miles and miles away from it. Mm. It's like the the purring of stateless and faithless and and trying to... F- I'm wondering, basically, if 20 years ago in America, like, to be faithless almost made you stateless. Well, yeah, it would do. You still have to... I think you still have to take a pledge of... A pledge that involves God to become president, if you know what I mean. So, like, to be the leader, you have to say, so help me God. Mm. Now, whether that's just a ritual thing or it is a, you know, a requirement that you believe in God in some form... Well, our whole court system's based on that. Well, yeah, let's not get started on on, <laughs> on, on legal things. Um, um, but, but yeah, it just... That, that made me really think about those two words being put together, stateless and faithless. Mm. And and I, I would imagine that the, the two are very... It's almost the same thing. It's two sides of the coin. Yeah, but it's not really like an idea that's developed across that. I mean, it's it's it's. But that's what's beautiful about Bono. Like he can sing two two words, and I think about it for fifteen years. Yeah, fair enough. I just, I I kind of feel like it's the reason this is a B side is because it's a first draft that they took up to a certain point and thought, oh, it's a solid B side. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> this ain't getting on the A side, my friend. No, exactly. I mean, but it's it's quite loose essentially. Um. I remember when we talked back about The Ground Beneath Her Feet, you two labelled that song as a ballad salad, as in something that could get up to a certain point, but they didn't feel as complete. I mean, they're wrong about that, but this feels more like a ballad salad. It's got nice lines. There are no colours in your eyes. There's no sunshine in your skies. There's no race, only the prize. But they are kind of like first draft lyrics, and then they've thought... Well, that's not that good of a song. Just, just we'll just sing it and whatever. Yeah. And it's and people won't pour over it for ten minutes on a podcast. Which, I, feel, I feel like Bono. They basically just like what Bono in a studio and he just sang. Yeah. And kept singing. And again, it's not bad. It's just that it's not really defined. Um. I mean, I guess it would be a bit trite to say that the song itself is a bit stateless. But there we go. The the movie gives it context. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. The one thing I was interested in is at the very end. Um, I'm just looking at some lyrics, you know, straight away some lyrics on, on Google. The last lines say stateless, faithless, and then hey bliss. But I heard it as hate this. Um, so I don't know what people hear at home. I mean, or maybe Bono said hate this. Um, you know, our, I mean, we, we don't hear this. I mean, you don't hear the songs right. And 
I, I'm normally unsure on some lyrics, so and Google can be wrong. So, well, yeah, it just changes and the way that you hear the end of the song because whether we're saying "Hey Bliss" or "Hate This," it ends the song in a very different way. But not that it matters. But if you hear something different, then you know you might be saying "Hey Sis" or I don't know, lots of different things. Uh, sepsis. Sepsis. Yeah. Mm. Um, can't think of any more. <laughs> Faithless, stateless sepsis. Yeah. yeah. And then, he, and then the song finishes because he dies. Right, Satellite of Love. Oh, my God. Like, can they just leave this song yeah. well and truly alone? I, I, I've I lost patience with this song now. I really enjoyed... It more or less all its forms. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Zoo TV thing. I thought that was great. A great yeah. moment, a great uh, little gimmick to have Lou Reed on, you know, seemingly coming through space. Mm. That was great. And then as I've got older, I get a little bit more sick every time I hear it. It's like, I've seen this. It really is a one-time yeah. thing. Yes. And then for them to resurrect it seven years later, I mean, was it's basically like Lou Reed just gave Bono this song. He's like, there you go, mess this up. Well, then he passed it on to Mila Joker Jokovic. Oh, God. And... It was all right at first. Uh, yeah, it was fine at first. I think I was, I was. I mean, this really doesn't have anything to do with you two. This bit because it's just her and the Million Dollar Band. So I don't think there's any member of you two on this song, unless Bono is off stage somewhere whispering stage directions like "Start off singing this song nicely," and then he chucks a one of Brian Eno's oblique strategy cards. Uh, it just says "Go crazy" and make a very uncomfortable listen. And uh, yeah, Brian, he's Brian Eno's got his grubby little hands all over this song. I don't, I don't know about that. Um, I think Lou Reed couldn't have enjoyed this version. Um, the annoying thing is, though, that it starts off really well. As in, her, she's got a lovely voice. I didn't know she was actually a singer as well. She's apparently a recording artist in her own right, to some extent. Um, obviously, a main... I mean, do you want to take that compliment back anymore? Well, she's mainly... Some a... may say well, she's a singer. At the end of this, you would be questioning that. Um, I just think she she's got a lovely voice, and then... It's just a really... I think she thinks she's doing something cool and bluesy and dangerous. And she probably thinks... It sounds she... more like garbage to me. The band, yeah, not the... the not the trash. Well, I like garbage. But I think garbage would do this better because... Yeah, you see, that's, for me, that's what she... It sounded like she was trying to do. I, so maybe that or... I thought she was trying to sort of recreate some of the um, like earlier 20th century blues singers you know jazz singers who would really push the voice you know to, to extremes but do it in an amazing way like Billie Holiday or something like that whereas this just feels overproduced and crackly and it's it's just it's badly mixed as well it's, it's yeah. so loud and it's so uncomfortable I, I, does anyone out there enjoy this this song at that point or is it because you might put it on in the background and think mm, it's nice enough but then you'd have to turn it off halfway through I, I think you would have to Unless you're doing a review of it, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's uncom- It's like, it's not pleasurable to listen to. No. Which is a really real, it's a real shame. Track five, Falling at Your Feet by Bono, Daniel Lamoir, and Bono and Daniel Lamoir, apparently. <laughs> That's because they're the writers and they're the performers. Yeah. Good. I've always liked this song. It's one a bit like Stateless that I've listened to outside the context of this album and really enjoy. And the pace is a little bit up and the melodies are very, very sweet in this. Tyler and I watched a version of this 
on YouTube, which was originally broadcast on RTE with Bono Edge in a flat cap, uh, Lamoir in a beanie, in a beanie, and we listened to a performance of it. It was quite a nice performance. But you've got a theory about that, Tyler? Haven't yeah. You? So basically, the Edge is playing a Gibson Firebird, a very nice red one, mm-hmm. which I we've never seen him play, and we normally we're geeks because we and we normally notice yeah. which guitars he's playing. Never seen him with a Firebird ever before in my life. And he likes right? Explorers and Les Pauls generally. The Edge. And yeah, and the SG for uh, elevation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so we know our stuff, and I've never seen him with a Firebird. I'd also never seen The Edge in a flat cap. I'd never seen Daniel Lamoir in a beanie. And Daniel Lamoir was playing a very nice golden Gibson Les Paul. Mm. So I think... To, I, don't, I don't know. I think maybe as a joke... They Bono spice switch, things up, you know, switch around the hats and the guitars. Like you go out wearing this, you go out wearing that. Well, I think I think Bono seems like he's very sort of sincere and dedicated to his performance. He seems quite serious. I reckon Edge was probably just a bit bored with this whole thing and then said, "Hey Dan, should we swap our hats and and guitars just to keep this a bit spice this up a little bit? This yeah. relatively nice sounding, but not exactly world storming song." You know? I thought Bono didn't want to be there. Really? Yeah, he didn't look like. It's like he knew it wasn't a very good song. Uh, well, I think it's a decent song. A bit like Stateless, you can tell that it's a B-side, and this isn't much of a criticism because they it's not like they stuck it on an album. It is a, it is a B-side material song. Well, it's, it's a bit just self-involved. Like, who am I? Who shall I trust? You know, teach me. It's like, oh, stop whining. Grow up. Yeah, not my will, thy will. It's very, it is very kind of weak and submissive and... Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not the sort of Bono song that I really enjoy. Where I, I, I like him. I've nothing wrong with songs like that, but they've done it better a few times already. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think having that confessional tone works so well in in other U two songs, but this one is just kind of. It's a bit repetitive. Every every chip from every cup, every promise given up, every reason that's not enough is falling, falling at your feet. I mean, but then again, I'm thinking about it now, and I do I do really like the the guitar and the bass is you know plods along quite nicely um it's it's good it's it's a it's a nice sounding song but you just would never think right that's going on the album i will probably never listen to this song again oh dear seeing if there are any lyrics oh i I thought the all fall down bit was uncharacteristic for you two it seems very very kind of Almost fairy tale-ish or nursery rhyme-ish. The all fall down, and then it keeps being repeated and backed up by backing singers. It seems to be more of a more of a Lanois song than a U two song, really. Yeah. But there we go. Um, Tom Tom's dream. Yeah, not technically a track. Bit well, of a snippet from the film, really. Well, um, I don't want to say anything about this because it's one of the better parts of the film. So. Like what goes on in this bit that makes it good? Tom Tom's dream, or is it Tom Tom's room? I'm on about. Tom Tom's room is where. Oh, Tom Tom's room is what I'm on about. Yeah. Tom Tom's dream. Then I'm not a clue. I have the floor. Okay. Well, um, it's breathy and quite beautifully written. Um, it's jazzy, and I think this is basically just a vehicle for John Hassel to show off his skills, really, which he does very nicely. I would let this roll on. I definitely wouldn't skip over it like Satellite of Love halfway through. But there isn't much to say about it, to be honest. And we've already talked about Tom Tom and the film and everything. So then we have an old familiar favourite coming in. The first time, which we've reviewed, obviously, on our Zeropa episode. And 
I can't really think of much. All to available this. in the archive, by the way. Yes, indeed. Um, I can't really think of much to add to this apart from. I remember thinking, how does this relate to the film itself? So we've done this in an odd order. I listened to the soundtrack, then I watched the film, and then we recorded our review of the film, and now we're doing the soundtrack. So I still can't really think about how it relates much, apart from the fact that I think Tom Tom, he feels love for Eloise, and it's the first time he's felt that complete sense of love. Or maybe it's the first time he, he has that revelation, like he says... After he jumped, it occurred to me he falls in love with life, and life is amazing. Yeah, but, like, yeah, it doesn't really fit with the film. I, I think it's, it it focuses this in the film. I mean, the, the the on the album, it's just the same version of the song as yeah. from Zeropa, but in the film, it it focuses more on the I have a lover, a lover like Nova, instead of the the brother, you know, yeah. and the father is a rich man. It's all about that having that lover and who or what that lover could be. Yeah, so it reframes the song, thinking about maybe Eloise more. Yeah. I think, or maybe him just falling in love with life. It's or again the hotel. Yes, yeah, the people the, do fall in love. The, there, there are. I don't know if you've uh, heard the term. You must have done because you're a modern man. But they're they're known as hotel sexuals. Are they? Yeah, yeah, and uh, they they are men often in the you know late late forties mm. who uh, who love hotels and will often just go to a hotel on their own. Fair enough. They're they're welcome to do that. Yeah. I mean. I feel like the if if you were reading this um, film and you were trying to make it a little bit more potential, you could say almost like it's like the hotel is a character itself. In the way that people always do that with films about New York, they're like, I just feel that New York is a is a character itself. If you know what I mean. I I just feel like this song is saying something to me. You know, yeah. like this song is written all about me. <laughs> well. The first I would, actually, I would really like, because um, I, re- I reckon there would be some really funny answers if we asked our Twitter followers which U2 song feels like it was written all about you. Yeah, in a nice way, not in that yeah, way. Yeah, because we just I, I can think of several that would apply for me. The Showman? And, and Yeah, The Showman would be a, a, a really great one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there, there are some really embarrassing ones where I feel like I've connected to it on like this, this really emotional level. Uh, mm. And... Um, I think there could be really some really funny answers there. Well, yeah. So if you feel like if you feel like saying one of those songs, I'll you feel tweet like it, was... it out shortly before this episode goes out. Oh, fair enough then. Um, then we have bathtub. This is so quick; it's not really worth going into depth on. It's a minute and six seconds, and to me, this just seems like it's nice. It's perfectly nice, but it just seems like someone um, just. It's like the the million dollar band is sat around the studio and they're all just getting used to their instruments and just having a plinky plonk over here, a little bit of a jazz trumpet over there, a bit of synth. And then they go, right, let's actually record the music and then the track finishes. So it feels like almost them just sat around like that with the, the mics and the equipment on. Uh, and there's not much more to say about that. But I mean, it's a song called Bathtub. So mm. what, what, I mean, what do you expect really? The first time, reprise, a two-minute reprise of the song, and I actually think this is really nice. It's not essential, obviously. I'm not going to be, you know, listening to this on repeat 20 times. However, there's some areas of the song which are newly explored, which is nice, and I was thinking, this type of reinterpretation of the song, imagine if you went to a club and they just did... Reprises. Yeah, and these... The reprisal. This sort of, yeah, an, an evening of reprisals. Um, and with the Million Dollar Band, and they just did selected, interesting, some some A-sides, some deep cuts. 
of lovely U2 songs, but in this style. I, I think that would be a lovely bar to go to. And I'd, if as long as it wasn't too loud, then it would be a great way to spend an evening listening to different reprisals and versions of of the song. So mm. I don't know, I don't know how you feel about that. Did you enjoy this version? Loved it. Really, really. Uh, it was a nice bit of recipe. I think I think because I was somewhat familiar with it anyway, yeah. um, for obvious reasons. And it's kind of like. I suppose it's like meeting a friend when you've not seen them for a few years and they've got a new haircut and they've lost a bit of weight and, they're lo- you know, they're looking good. Yeah. It's the same person, but it's like it seems like a new and improved version. Yeah. I'm not saying this is new and improved, but it's it's like catching up with an old friend is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's like a, a remixed version of it with different strengths. And yeah. I would just... I mean, what songs, just off, off the cuff, what kind of songs would you like to see done in this way? As well, because there's some that obviously wouldn't translate as well. Like Mofo wouldn't be a good one, I would say. But there's other ones which could work really nicely. Yeah, there are there there are some songs. Uh... I think maybe obviously there's obviously songs like Promenade, which are just beautiful and quite gentle to begin with. Yeah, and you wouldn't want two epic songs. Like I don't know, maybe you would. I don't know. See what see what you guys think as well. But the softer kind of songs. Or maybe even just ones that are a bit more... For some reason, Kite's coming in my head. Yeah, that could work, definitely. Um, I mean, there would be a lot. Maybe the next time we do a Q&A, uh, you two then and now can ask us to name one song for each year the band's been together. That's very <laughs> Sorry, Neil. Very rude. <laughs> do you know what? He did point out on Twitter that because we spent so long on his first question, we forgot his second question. Well, maybe we'll get round to it in the in the second batch of Q and A's if we if we do it. Sorry, Neil. You know I'm only joking, mate. I guess that is um, I guess that is another thing we can ask for. If you if we get more questions in for the Q and A thing, we're happy to do a volume two on that, and it could literally be anything. So, yeah. and if if anything's come up since the last time, then please ask. Track number ten is Tom Tom's Room, and this is again one that's more focused on the the discussion that's in here and the bad punning all about Eloise's beaver that Tom Tom thinks is a is a real beaver that she's got rid I of. I don't want to talk about this. Well, Because it's one of the best points of the... Uh, oh, it's I, not I, a great joke. No, it's not, but it is... It, in, in a film like that, <laughs> my God, it's funny. Okay. And it's a light-hearted moment. I don't think we should ruin it for well, people. Well, we've not ruined it. We just said You that... just told everybody the joke. Well, I suppose they could work out the pieces of the puzzle, I guess. Anyway, Tom Tom's room. What did you what did you think about this? Anything? Um, nice bit of the film. Don't want to ruin it for you. Go and watch it. Okay. Next bit. Funny face. The only the only thing I've got written down here is a bad ringtone. Oh, do you know what? As soon as I saw funny face, all I could think about is the um, uh, the in betweener track. Uh, not the in betweeners. The inhaler track. Uh, Honest face. And like, yeah, and I just heard a much better song. I just heard Eli going, "My funny face." My funny face. Well, I mean, I don't think that's going to be a version that they do. Uh, I don't, no. I don't think they'll be covering funny face. But, but there's a there's a film where someone someone calls someone funny face. Oh, is it's it's uh, Naked Gun. Uh, Leslie Nielsen's girlfriend, one of the Presley sisters, or wives or whatever, mm-hmm. always refers to Leslie Nielsen's character Frank Drebin as as a funny face. Well, I mean, that's what we have to say about this song. Yeah. I mean, so track twelve, dancing shoes. Yeah. No, this one is actually pretty interesting. Um, Bono here feels like he's playing some sort of role. It's very bluesy and very 
a lot heavier than the rest of the album. It's got some crunchy guitar in yeah, there. Yeah, I, I, I think the difference is he doesn't seem like he's trying to drag along the rest of the band with him. It feels like everybody's in on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also feels a bit much sharper and more defined than the Bono you get in Stateless and Falling at Your Feet, which is just a bit kind of airy and not really going anywhere. This is him playing an arch sort of character. It feels very... Both a bit Rattling Hummy and a bit Zoo TV, actually. And I think it's I think it's about... And if it's about anything, to me, it seems to be about femininity and sexuality and perhaps cruelty and reflects that idea of Eloise being abused throughout the film because this idea of, like, go and get your dancing shoes, that seemed to be Bono saying it in a cruel way rather than a a nice way. So I think that's that, to me, is what the song suggests itself to be about. Yeah, it's it's, it's certainly an interesting topic because there's this, this huge contradiction between our emotional and social states and our primal urges and desires, which we've been almost trained ourselves to completely ignore at this point. Well, and you yeah. think about any other animal doing that. Mm. It's a really unnatural thing to do. But I'm glad that, that oh, yeah. some, you know, like, you know, that society and emotion have had a part to improve lives and take it away from that primal. But, but we are all still this primal being. Well, yeah, if Freud's to be believed, we we just repress all that kind of stuff and it, it can come out in unnatural and unhealthy ways at certain points. Yeah. So there we go, uh, Freud 101. Um, did you like the song? Uh, yeah, it was uh, one of the best. I think it began to pick up towards the last few tracks I, I really began to like. Yeah, uh, this next one, the first impression I had, Amsterdam Blue Brackets, uh, brackets Cortage. Um, I've never seen that word before. I don't know what it I means. I think it's. Called, I would have said cortage. So cortage. Yeah. Is that is that what you put on someone? You know, when you turn up at someone's house and you give them a flower and they work. You know, if to the prom, is that a cortage? I think it's a similar word but different. I could be wrong. Mm, whatever. Um, so this is one. Corsage. Sausage. <laughs> I don't <Vinny>? know. <laughs> What a reference. Right. Anyway, so the first thing I thought when I saw this song is, Jesus, this is over nine minutes. Well, oh, oh, overnight minutes, as you've put in your notes. Yeah, but those, those are my notes. and they're for Jesus, my, overnight minutes. They're for my eyes only. Um, Jesus, overnight minutes. I love that. That's a, an album title, though. Jesus, overnight minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, um, I left it on, and it was... I expected to turn it off, to be honest, but I just did it around on the internet and on Twitter and messed around with like word and stuff. And I, I left it on and it, it spilled through and it was, it was nice. Um, I'd say this would be quite a good uh, song to stick on the back of a chill out album just to calm things down. It sounds great. A lot it's, of the time it's, it's, only, just... it's only complete, which a lot of other things didn't on this album. Well, you'd hope so after, mm. after nine minutes. Um, and it just shows off this, the playing style of the Million Dollar Band. The Million Dollar Band are very good professional musicians. Um, it's just a shame that the songs aren't a bit more focused at different points. Oh, God, we've got more Satellite of Love. Again, to me, this I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything to say for this minute, six minute, six seconds of music, apart from it was pretty, and I'm sick of hearing Satellite of Love. Yeah, I thought it was pretty... Um... Oh god, there's another one after it. <laughs> yeah, I, and and I th- I think that the I've I've basically reviewed the reprise and the remix is the same thing because they, they do lead right into each other and yeah it's yeah part it, of the same you thing. know it's the same thing. Now I did enjoy this version a hell of a lot more than 
Yeah, the earlier the, the one. Other, the other one, it yeah. seemed more artistic, more refined, um, much more pleasant to listen to. Until? Well, until she goes stupid again and starts <laughs> screaming. And yeah. It's, now it's, some people might really like that. But I don't think those people are buying this album or watching this film. Yeah. Sorry, no one's watching this film. Yeah. They aren't buying the album. Well, th- yeah, no one went to watch it, definitely. And, I mean, we've we've been fans, as we've said, for so long and not really gone near it, and maybe that this is why. Um, and I want to make it clear, right, I, I'm not having a go at the fact that she goes up into a different register. There's lots of artists who can do that flip between the, the harsh and the calm, and that's great. It's just that it's a bad sound. So, mm. so I mean, the the thing that I thought about here is it's unpleasant to listen to. Yeah, it is. And I was thinking, like, if you, I could, I could don't really relate to food. So, if sometimes when you eat a meal, you get a little surprise. Like, so if you eat a curry, you might think, and you're going through the rice, like, oh, a cardamom pod. Like, I wasn't expecting that. No, I hate them. Well, I hate them. <laughs> well. Okay, but at least it's in the right context. Or if you go through, a, if you're eating a chili, you might be like, oh, oh yeah, it's expected. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, oh, it's a mushroom. I didn't know there's mushroom in here, but yeah. it, this is like eating a career chili and you find like a finger. It's like if I went watching, say, Ramstein and I was stood up front and a pit broke out, mm. I would only have myself to blame. Yeah, exactly. I know it's part of the thing, yes. you know, so I'd do the sensible thing and buy a seat, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah, fair enough. So it's it just it pops up and. It shouldn't be in this. And I think the production on the Danny Saber remix, which is this version, is is decent. The production's decent, but it's just kind of ruined halfway through. So there we go. I tried to listen to Satellite of Love, the original, because I thought, do I just not like this song? And I listened to the original Lou Reed version yesterday, and I'm not sure I do, to be honest. I think I find it a bit annoying as the song goes. I've, I've tried to get into... Um, what's his face? You Lou Reed? Said, Lou Reed, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking Lee Evans then. <laughs> Very different vibe. Yeah, uh, I, was tra- I was trying to get into it, so I was listening to Velvet Underground, and I've got a friend who just you know, thinks he's a genius, and I would probably agree with that, but his music doesn't really connect with me, or hasn't done so far. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it never will. It's one to try, eventually. I just, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, I don't think Satellite of Love is particularly representative of Lou Reed either. I think it's just one of his well-known songs. I, I like the... Duh. Yeah, that's a decent song. Which, by the way, everybody builds up that that bit and makes the melody better. If if you know if you just do it off the top of your head, mm. it's that you you would do it better than the record version. Well, I guess it's it's something that's take stuck... a walk on the wild side. That isn't it? Yeah, I think I think I mean that's similar to Satellite of Love. The um, there's bits of that like the bum 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 like bits that have been Lou Reed for Tummel eventually. Uh, if people think of an album, I mean maybe Transformer or something like that. But there's other albums that I know more and would prefer to do. But guys, any re- recommendations for Tummel will be will be stuck on the pile and eventually got through hopefully. And finally, we have Anarchy in the USA. Um, technically, the Sex Pistols get a reference here as songwriters, which is fair enough. It's sung by Tito La River, and it is and the Million Dollar Hotel Band. I just thought this was a weird way to end the album. It's it, the only thing that would be useful in this is that it comes at the end of the album, and it might wake everyone up, and they could then leave the cinema if they'd fallen asleep. Yeah, um, it didn't leave an impression on me really. It kind of it was a bit of a 
you know, it woke you. It does wake wake you up. You're right yeah. on that one. Especially because we've had so many quiet songs through throughout this whole album, and then this is stuck on at the end, like a a big clap just to sort of wake everyone. It's like going into a library and letting off a hand grenade. Yeah, and like weird, weird. I mean, maybe we should re- really be reviewing this as a soundtrack and not as an album because the two things are different. Well, yeah, the... I've not been thinking about it as a as a cohesive album. Yeah. All right, well, is it a soundtrack or a flipping soundtrack? Um, it's a difficult one to answer that. There are some soundtracks which are incredible and that I, yeah. I listen to and really, really enjoy, uh, particularly when playing a game of Settles of Catan. You stick on the Lord of the Rings soundtrack and just lose yourself. Recently reread um, the first two books of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for my Audible credit next month to get Return of the King. Did you have the the soundtrack on at the same time? No, of course not. Okay. The well, book, the books are like twenty odd hours long, so. Oh, okay. Well, so you were listening to it rather than reading it. I was thinking. I was thinking. I was you... listening to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then I can go for a walk. Yeah, well, I try sense. not to read and walk at the same time. Well, it can only lead to accidents, especially if you've got the soundtrack. My, on my, this is a, a, a legitimately true story. My dad, when he was training to be a nurse was reading a book on nosebleeds walking down the street. Oh, so it was walked coming. into a lamppost mm-hmm. and had a nosebleed all over the book about nosebleeds. <laughs> and my dad will tell you that story any time you ask, even if you asked, five seconds ago. <laughs> it's a corker. Yeah, it's, it's one of his best. Um, so, I think, to sum up, this... There, there are... I mean, it does have a mood... It, and there are some there's some nice synthesizer on here and there's some really nice jazz trumpet which I was not expecting to say so I think it is a, a good soundtrack in in a way because it, yeah. it does a job it creates a vibe doesn't it nothing on this soundtrack surprises me Mila Jokovic surprised me in terms of the film I, I, I it's like I wasn't I, yeah I, I expected everything I heard you know hmm yeah, the there's some. The, I mean, to be fair, I, never let me go. I will go back to that song because I just the quality of Bono's singing is great, and I think it's 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 a really good. It, it's it knows what it wants to be, and it is that, and it does it well. It, it reminds me of a better song. Which one? Uh, Slide away with oh, Hutch yeah, and Bono. Well, maybe we'll get around to that at some point. Hutch. So, um, well, I think we can wrap up the Million Dollar Hotel. I think we can check out. Uh, it's not been a particularly pleasant stay, but I will not be leaving a horrible TripAdvisor review. That's that's the way I can sum it up. So it was it was pleasant enough. Yeah, it was worthwhile. It's it's something uh, from the YouTube fan canon thing mm. um, that I had completely avoided for the best part of twenty years. Yeah, and I'm glad I watched it. I will watch it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad that our lovely Twitter followers gave us the nudge, you know, to do that. Yeah. Because I was more up for doing melon, uh, and you're I was, I was you're really for, not up for doing melon. I was up for doing neither. I I would literally rather watch Captive, fa- track down a DVD copy of that, and then review that. Because I actually I think we'd be better off with a Betamax. I might just do that on my own. Actually, I might just do like a 20 minute episode where I just talk about Captive, and if anyone wants to listen, they can listen. Because I don't think you want to do Captive. I would do it if it was more accessible. Mm. Yeah. I can't find it anywhere. No, um, neither can I. Oh well. um, but there we go. Um, so this is the August episode. Uh, maybe you'll get another one. I don't know. Uh, we're working on a few things for the next coming months, uh, so the episodes might be a bit slow coming to you. 
but yeah, we've got the long-awaited Bruce Springsteen Born to Run Tummel episode coming soon. Hopefully soon, yes. Uh, we just need to have be able to have a room and three of us in it because we've got a special guest, our friend, who has said he thinks he now knows more about Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run than anybody else on the planet. Well, that's setting him up for a fall. Uh, well, perhaps. Uh, we never give you those such promises. No. Uh, but and, yeah, there we go. and also, we don't know very much about Bruce Springsteen. It's not an artist that's particularly in our wheelhouse, but we know there's a big crossover between the fandoms, so yeah. I think it'll be a nice one to explore, and one where the album will be a bit of a revelation rather than just being something we've, we've talked about lots of times before. Also coming up, we've got the huge U244 uh, fan events, which I'm sure you'll start to see more of mentioned on Twitter. Obviously, uh, I will be going to Welcome to the Northside Festival in Dublin. That's the 25th to the 27th of September in the heart of Dublin at the Church Bar. I personally can't wait for that. I can't wait for the, all the celebrations that come out in September for U244. Uh, as I say, we've got a few things that we're, we're going to try and do for then. Um, but that's pretty much it. And we're, mm-hmm. we're fast approaching the end of the year now. It, it, it really for me it really feels like oh god August then that's it it's Christmas and we're done August bank holiday Christmas done well things do speed up but I mean we've, I mean I, I hope not because it's only it's only just the seventh <laughs> month really so although to be fair this year has been an awful write off so um, apart from having a bit more time to focus on you know a little bit more podcasts and things like that it's been an awful year but you know so yeah. good good riddance to it and hopefully we don't have a second wave. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us on this edition. This is uh, basically a celebration of four years of review, too. So, thank you to everybody that's been with us all the way through. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you very, very soon. But for now, goodbye. See ya. Thank you for listening to Review 2, the YouTube podcast. If you'd like to get in contact or for more information, please follow us on Twitter at REV underscore U2 or on Facebook.com forward slash REV U2 For those rebel type guys, why not email us at Review2Contact at gmail.com. Review 2 was presented by Johnny and Tyler.